0: Are you ready to explore the future? Enter our time travel machine and discover the potential of tomorrow's technologies with Ani Balakrishnan and Valentin Khan. And here they come, the Utopian Techniacs. They are all around us, yet we have no clue how they work. But once we find out more about them, the underlying principles could accelerate our progress on a magnitude previously unthought of. Some people think we will never even get them to work. But nobody disagrees with the fact that they would represent a tectonic shift for the human race. Quantum computers.
1: The industry is set to grow from $500 million in 2019 to $65 billion by 2030. But will the speed of quantum computers speed up our path to creating a general artificial intelligence? What about encryption? And could we use them for teleportation? Let's explore that. Welcome to the UTX Podcast, your source of tomorrow's technology, presented by Two Maniacs. I'm Ani. And I'm Valentin. And
0: today we're going to talk about quantum computers and quantum supremacy. We'll start at the basics of quantum mechanics and computing, look at the actual technology and then look at its challenges and applications and cap it off with a utopian day. Let's get into it.
1: All right. So what is quantum computing? Quantum computing and quantum supremacy both mean the utilization of properties of certain semiconductors on a subatomic or quantum level. More, more concretely, superposition, entanglements and tunneling, all of which we will explain later on. These are all used to perform specific calculations much faster than classical computers and processing units could ever do. So a quantum computer now means a computer which is capable of quantum computing. And quantum supremacy is the idea that quantum computers will outperform classical computers in terms of time and space, um, complexity on useful computational tasks. It doesn't mean that quantum computers will be able to do things that classical computers cannot do. It just means that they can do some tasks much faster than classical computers can. However, the same quantum properties that might enable higher-performing computation might also prevent us from achieving quantum supremacy anytime soon. But more on that later.
0: But before we talk about quantum computing, let's dive into the principles of quantum mechanics. So the main principles that we will discuss are essentially what a quantum is, then Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, superposition, entanglement, uh, as well as quantum tunneling, as well as a short discourse into teleportation. Now, a quantum is what we know of as subatomic matter, so what the atoms are composed of. We refer to them as photons, neutron and neutrons, and electrons. And within an atom, they can take on different positions and they inherit to a wave-particle duality. More on that later. Now, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle states that for a quantum, we can only measure one of two things. We can either measure its position with certainty, or we can measure its momentum or velocity with certainty. The more certain, the more certainly we measure one of the two, the more impossible it is to measure the other one. And um, this applies essentially to all, not just to quantums, but to all wave-like systems. But it's a fundamental principle um, that is also at the base, for instance, of superposition.
1: Right. So a quantum superposition is the fundamental principle of quantum mechanics, where any two quantum states can be added together and the results will be another valid quantum state. Now, to explain this, um, this principle has been proven in many different experiments, one of them, or the, the oldest one, is the Copenhagen Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics by Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg from 1927, and they say that quantum mechanics can only predict the probability distribution, not the exact measurement of a quantum state. So it's just about the probability distribution, what you can expect, and not the exact measurement, and that's because quantum's don't have these definite properties before being measured, and the interesting thing, as you mentioned before, is that these quantum's are both particles and waves at the same time, and this is known as the wave-particle duality. And this has been shown in some well-known experiments. We'll get to one uh, later, and this is a super, uh, This is known as the superposition where you have a a quantum that is in two states simultaneously and they resolve into one state or collapse into one state once we observe or measure them. So our very observation of a superposition forces it to create reality, as it were. And so the famous experiment is known as the double-split experiments. And here you basically shoot a photon through a metal slit And it's shot as a particle initially, but ends up as a wave form at the wall behind the metal. And this demonstrates its superposition, in that its resolution into one of the two states only occurs when the result is observed. This idea of existing in two states and only being forced uh, into one once it's been observed is probably the most, uh, it's probably best known in the Schrodinger's CAT experiment a thought experiment from Irving Schrodinger that he mentioned in discussion with the famous Albert Einstein, where you place a cat into a sealed box along with a flask of deadly poison and radioactive source. Now, the poison is released only when the internal monitor detects radioactivity. Radioactivity is only detected as a wave. Yet, according to the Copenhagen Interpretation, Due to the wave-particle duality, the radioactive source is both particle and wave at the same time. That means because it's a particle, radioactivity isn't detected. But because it's simultaneously a wave, it is detected. So this means that you have two outcomes simultaneously. You have the poison being released and the cat dying, as well as the poison not being released and the cat being alive which means that the cat is dead and alive at the same time. But it's only resolved into one of these two states, meaning that only when we observe does the radioactivity decide on whether it's a wave or a particle, and subsequently whether the cat is alive or dead.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, quantum mechanics is really spooky. (laughs) Uh, In fact, so spooky that for the other principle, entanglement, uh, Albert Einstein, the man himself, said spooky action at a distance. Now, if we split, for instance, uh, photons, if we have two entangled photons, uh, theoretically, it does not matter how far off they are from each other. When they are entangled, um, if you spin one of them, the other will spin two. And um, this happens faster than the speed of light. So I think uh, several hundred times faster than the speed of light. Now, the idea is um, when you have an interference of quantum entangled particles, which you have in an extension of the double slit experiment, which essentially mean that you split the photon um, prior to sending it through the slit. And what happens if you observe one of the two the interference um, pattern that you would expect to occur at the at the wall behind is not going to happen for this for the for the very reason that you observed one of the photons so this means that the observer uh, him or herself uh, actually has an impact on the result now an interpretation of this is even if you observe the outcome in the future so even if you observe one of the photons in the future the other photon in the past is going to decide not to be a wave, uh, which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, And this is how far our understanding goes. So there's a long way to go still when it comes to entanglement, but the properties of it we can uh, partially already use today, and they will prove to be very useful for quantum computing. Another one is quantum tunneling. And quantum tunneling is a principle that refers to the fact that waves can pass a physical barrier that is not thicker than somewhere in between one to three nanometers. So instead of surmounting the obstacle, instead of uh, having to go over the barrier, it can simply pass it. It can pass through it effortlessly, which is another useful property of quantum mechanics for quantum computing. And where it gets uh, not just spooky, but somewhat futurist and and crazy is teleportation. Now, according to the no-cloning theorem, you cannot actually do teleportation like in the movies. So you cannot uh, create a copy of a, of a of a particle, of a quantum, and then send it to somewhere else. But you can transform and, and transfer its state. So um, this has been done before by Chinese Austro- astronauts in June th- 2017. And the connection was between Earth and their Michius uh, satellite, which is a distance of 1,400 kilometers. Uh, the uh, One of the photons, I think it was a pair of photons, was in Tibet and the other was at uh, the Mishyos satellite. And they were capable of beaming uh, or teleporting the photon to the satellite. And they were capable of measuring the entanglement by spinning the photon, for instance, and then were also able to teleport it. Now how this, how this works is essentially you have uh, a pair of photons. And let's say there is Q. So Q is one of the photons that you're trying to teleport or beam. Then there is S. So S is an outside particle. And then there is T. So in this case, Q is in Tibet and T is at the Mish's satellite. Those two are the um, two photons and they are entangled. Now what you do is you entangle Q, which is the particle that you're trying to send, so to speak. You entangle it with S and S is the new particle. And then you entangle S with T. Um, This is possible because you can entangle particles more than once. And as you send, or as you entangle S with T, and as S sort of transfers um, over to T, it can transfer over Q as a a new state to T. And thus you can effectively uh, teleport Q. Uh, I hope this was sort of clear but um it's it's quite complex as you as you can see but this is more or less how um teleportation in, in a
1: quantum world uh, works right so now that we have all the principles of quantum mechanics that we'll need to understand quantum computers let's take a look at quantum computers and how they're built up so we'll first take a look at classical computers, then quantum computers, and then also a look at the more software or software side of quantum computers. So one thing to notice, maybe as a heads up, is that in terms of how far we are with quantum computers, we're at the very, very beginning of of one era in that um, if you just look at the size that quantum computers take up today, we have a very long way to go from a room-sized quantum computer to something that fits in our pockets or in our hand even. And not only are we at the beginning of one era, we're also nearing the end of another era, that of classical computers, because the fact is that classical computer chip sizes cannot be made smaller. Apple Apple recently had a breakthrough where the transistors are reached seven nanometers in size, but I think any more smaller and we'll be having um, physical limitations just because we'll be nearing the size of atoms. So a classical computer, at least a CPU, the central processing unit in a classical computer, works by storing information in the form of electricity flow. And this information is stored using transistors. Transistors can either... Let the electricity pass through, that's a one, or they can stop the flow, a zero. And they're made of semi-conductive material and they can be controlled from outside, like silicon. Now, this means that we can actually control the flow of electricity um, and creating a series of ones and zeros, we can create things known as logic gates. So we can make um, certain conditions that only if two logic gates both have electric flow, that it, gets, it passes on a signal. And these really allow us to build bigger, more complex operations, functions, entire programs, and um, in the end, what we know as operating systems. So this is how a um, CPU works. And these CPUs, yeah, they work with these uh, binary digits or bits of zeros and ones. And they can really do a very small number of tasks very efficiently. On the other hand, you have the GPU or a graphics processing unit. And these chips are built in a way that they can handle many, many tasks at the same time, but they can do it as well. And these are really useful for matrix computations, such as rendering images, hence the name graphics processing units. But these can also be applied in machine learning. So for for three-dimensional matrices, um, Google has invented the tensor processing units, because uh, these tensors are used in deep learning. So much to how a classical computer works. Now we'll take a look at quantum computers. Now there are several models or types of quantum computers. The most widely used one is the quantum circuits. They use so-called quantum bits or qubits, And these qubits can not only take on a state of either 0 or 1, just like the bits, but they can also take a superposition between these two. And if we were to describe this mathematically, it's a probability distribution over both outcomes. So it would look something like 30% chance of 0, 70% chance of 1. So it's a distribution of the probabilities of which one it could be. And... Of course, as we know from previously, being a superposition, it collapses into one of the states once we observe it. Now, this means that because it splits into two into two, uh, into a superposition of zero and one simultaneously, it means that a qubit has the computing power of two to the power of n with n qubits, meaning that one qubit has 2 to the power of 1 or 2, the power of 2 bits. Now, if we're talking, say, 4, with 4 bits, you'd have just 4 bits, right? But with 4 qubits, you'd have 2 to the power of 416. So this exponential growth means that we'd have a lot more computing power, much more condensed. And, um, yeah, these qubits are based on quantums, these subatomic particles that we know from earlier. and specifically on the polarization of a photon or the spin um, of an electron. And the question of which materials to use and under what um, conditions to achieve these properties is still being researched. But the one that we use today, um, or one of the more more popular um, implementations, used to be the... um, placing semiconductors like silicon or even chemical elements like niobium in a vacuum and cooling them down to close to zero Kelvin, so absolute zero almost. And this allows you to modify and measure their spin, either through uh, electrical or microwave impulses. But the more widely used one um, method now is using trapped ions or loaded atomic particles, And these ions are trapped in a magnetic field, an electromagnetic field, and using lasers, um, you can apply initialization and state measurement. And these have been the most promising architecture for, you know, a scalable and also universal quantum computer. And theoretically, you could increase uh, the performance of quantum computers just by increasing the number of qubits, but this approach isn't as simple and does have a few downsides, as we'll discover in a bit.
0: Now, in, for classical computers, the way that they decide to let electricity flow or not is a logic gate. Quantum computers um, have also these logic gates, but they work a bit differently because they are reversible. This means that for mathematical operations, where based on the output, you can determine the input, you can inverse the function. And this is what a so-called Hadamard gate achieves for a one-qubit solution.
1: Um,
0: As a function, it can both output zero or two, which fulfills the superposition requirement. And this essentially gives us the logical and mathematical underlying for parallel computations that we do in quantum computers. Um, an example of where we could apply entanglement is in graph computations. Now consider the um, famous travel salesman problem. Um, where, and actually, let's take the, the labyrinth problem because that's um, more intuitive. So if you want to traverse a labyrinth, so you're entering a labyrinth and you're trying to find the exit, what a classical computer would do intuitively, so um, imaginary is it would enter the labyrinth And as one entity would search for the exit, it would just traverse through the labyrinth and eventually find it. Uh, Compared to what a quantum computer does, it's um, sort of inefficient and really slow. Now, what a quantum computer does is, at least in theory, it splits uh, in in the various superpositions that it can achieve. And then it traverses through the labyrinths cooperatively as many entities. Thus, it finds the exits much sooner, much faster, and much more efficiently. Now, research uh, suggests that quantum tunneling, quantum tunneling so waves um, passing um, any barrier that is between one and three nanometers or less, could also be a challenge for um, quantum computing which we'll also discuss in the challenge section. But for now, another implementation of a quantum computer is based on what they call a consistor. So researchers have created a system where they build the barrier between the qubits in such a way that the quantums have a certain probability of exiting or not based on the quantum tunneling effect. And this certain probability is their variation of a superposition that they achieve. So, for instance, fifty percent, there's a fifty percent chance of the electrons um, passing the um, passing the system, Um, and this would essentially make a quantum gate, uh, which is very helpful in the computational process now we have been talking about hardware now we should also talk about the software part because in order to use these quantum computers as we've already discussed you they are not per se better in serving any kind of problem and with any kind of performance but for some problems they prove to be faster than classical computers and these problems in order to solve those problems we need to build algorithms And we can look at three examples of such rather famous algorithms that we use in quantum computers. One of them is quantum annealing. And the idea of quantum annealing rather than to have an algorithm in order to find a solution is to have an algorithm in order to find an algorithm that has a solution. So we call this a meta heuristic because we are trying out different algorithms in order to find the one that supposedly solves the problem in the best time and or space complexity or with the best time and space complexity. Anytime we face a mathematical problem, which is non-convex, non-convex means means it has more than one uh, minimum. So it has local minima. Anytime we face this, um, we have a problem. And we need to find a way in order to get out of the local minima and into the global minima, which is then how we minimize uh, or in some cases maximize the function to solve the problem. And in the case of quantum annealing, uh, it essentially uses superpositions again in order to figure out, in order to set the different potential solutions as different states and then figure out which of the solutions or which of the algorithms performs best. A second example is the Shor's algorithm developed by Peter Shor in 1994. And this is used for integer factorization. One uh, famous problem of integer factorization is finding prime numbers. So what Shor algorithms does, and it's exponentially faster in what it does than any classical factoring algorithm. What it does is it is utilizing Hadamard gates and modular exponentiation in order to um, in order to find the solution to the integer factorization problem. Now. Uh, Without going too much into the math, so modular exponentiation means that you exponentiate the function. So for instance, um, you you put something to the power of something else and the modulus is the remainder of a division pair. So in this case, the division pair has an an exponentiated base. So what Schor's algorithm has achieved is that it can break the RSA algorithm. The RSA algorithm is a widely known encryption scheme. Once a quantum computer could use or could utilize Shor's algorithm, it would be able to break today's encryption. So this poses a potential threat towards um, encryption systems of today, which we will also discuss a bit further later on. And the further and last example is Grover's algorithm, which is useful for search. It has been invented by Love Grover in 1996, and it has a high probability to find the input To a black box function. So once again, it's about the inverse. So given the function's output, it can find its input with high probability. And again, without going too much into detail, this is useful for searching, uh, for instance, an unstructured database or any any sort of unstructured data. And it is able to break um, both 128-bit as well as 256-bit keys, given enough time and, of course, a working quantum
1: circuit. Right. So that concludes the uh, actual technological part. Uh, we're pretty sure that from now on it'll be easier to follow along. It's it's quite a complex topic, but now that we've looked at the underlying principles of quantum mechanics and um, how quantum computers work, I think now um, we can take a look at where the kind of the big players. And to be honest, there are so many players in this field. It's um, Yeah, it's just, uh, as we mentioned, right, a growing market size from 500 million to 65 billion in just 11 years. That's crazy. Um, But we all know how big quantum computers are going to be. So one of the biggest players that we have to mention at the very beginning is Google. So last year, uh, Google, on the 23rd of October in 2019, released a very infamous paper claiming that Google AI, one of their divisions, Uh, in collaboration with NASA, achieved quantum supremacy. So quantum supremacy, as we discussed before, is a quantum computer completing a task much, much faster than a um, a regular or classical computer. And this was based on a quantum processor called Sycamore, and it had 54 qubits. One of them didn't work, so they had 53 qubits. And the task was to generate random numbers and figure out if a specific random number occurred in a subsequence of those random numbers. So it's fair to say that the task wasn't very useful, but according to Google, this task would have taken a computational or would have taken a classical supercomputer 10,000 years. So we're not talking a normal computer, a supercomputer would have taken 10,000 years. Now here's the big shocker. It took... The Google and NASA uh, quantum computer 200 seconds. In less than three and a half minutes, they accomplished what a supercomputer would have had to do in 10,000 years. Uh, and they claim to have demon- uh, demonstrated quantum supremacy, but um, Google's claim was contested by IBM. Um, and to many, it's not a really conclusive proof that quantum supremacy has been achieved, but I mean, you know, cutting down from thousands of years to minutes, (laughs) that's something else. Um, But again, it's not really a useful task, but it was just meant to show the quantum computer's performance. Um, And it's assumed that in order to achieve quantum supremacy, um, you would need more than just 53 or 54 qubits. A few hundred qubits would be needed. Um, according to Intel, but Intel and Quantum, a startup that uh, Val will talk about later, is um, they say that you need at least 1 million qubits to achieve real-world uh, implementations at commercial scale. So, right, I mean, 53 qubits being a breakthrough um, of magnanimous proportions and Intel and Quantum telling us that we need 1 million qubits really shows how much we still have left uh, ahead of us.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time when I got in touch with this subject, I think even the 53 qubit solution was a, a, a stretch goal, let's say. Yeah. So let's briefly look into uh, three other hardware giants and what they do in the quantum computing space, which are IBM, Intel, and Microsoft. So for IBM, it's clear that they historically been at the forefront of many innovations so many times before. And this time really is no different because in January 2019, they introduced the world's first circuit-based commercial quantum computer. At that time, it had 20 qubits. And to our knowledge, in the meantime, um, IBM is in in the Google-y sphere when it comes to qubits. So they have sort of, they scale to 50 qubits, more or less. Their goal is to scale quantum systems to a thousand qubits and beyond. And what IBM Cloud offers um, is quantum simulators and access to computational source or computational power where you can essentially run your computation on a quantum device. So
1: So this is cloud computing.
0: Exactly. So quantum-based cloud computing. So this is merely, of course, to show how it works um, with some visualizations as well. Um, Not as useful yet, um, not as production stage yet, so that you could do specific tasks much faster with quantum computer, which would be a uh, quantum supremacy. Now, Intel, um, for Intel, what is there to say? They are the leading manufacturer of uh, computer chips. Um, so for them, it makes a lot of sense to look into the future of computer chips and what computer chips could look like in that future. And so obviously, they are also working on the hardware side of it. So in their um, labs in Oregon, they are doing system-level engineering. And what they are targeting is production-level quantum computing within 10 years. Now, we're very excited what Intel does because in the classical computer world, they are definitely, yeah, definitely performing with the chip maker. Exactly. And then there is Microsoft. Microsoft is providing a lot of research and they are building a full-step quantum ecosystem as well cloud-based. So in Azure, so Microsoft's cloud, you have access to an application development kit, which um, supposedly has already been downloaded 100,000 times. And so you can do similar things as you you would do with um, IBM, which is testing computations in the cloud and um, um, getting provided uh, computational resources on the cloud that are quantum-based.
1: Exactly. So these are the um, established tech giants and uh, their take on quantum computing. But there are also many probably, I'd say, like B players, players who are upcoming or other established firms that aren't really known for working in consumer tech. So one of them is D-Wave, Canadian D-Wave Systems, the first player to really fully focus on quantum computing. And back in 2015, already, they had a quantum computer with more than 1,000 qubits for NASA. And they said that they would have a a solution with 5,000 qubits And their customers include Google and Lockheed Martin. Um, And D-Wave Leap Cloud is, again, an online dashboard and software development kit uh, for quantum computing so that anyone can use and kind of play around with their quantum processing unit for free. So there's that. Then there's Honeywell. And they're heavily invested to what we mentioned before, the trapped ion quantum computing hardware. So this uh, next-gen level of creating uh, uh, qubits. And as we mentioned, these uh, trapped ions are the most promising architecture for quantum computers. And um, as I mentioned before, Lockheed Martin, another company you'd think that'd be uh, working in the quantum computing space, their focus is on a uh, adiabatic quantum computing, which relates to applying rapidly varying conditions to quantum system such that it fails to adapt um, and its fundamental properties that are so useful for computation remain same. So their, their goal really is to improve manufacturing and aircraft uh, design logistics.
0: Uh, let's look into China. Um, China, just <laughs> a couple days ago, just a few weeks ago, has claimed to have surpassed Google and actually achieved quantum supremacy by not one by factor one or three, but by factor 10 billion. Billion now, with a B? With a B, yeah. <laughs> so it it is uh, unclear, at least to us, whether this whether they actually have achieved quantum supremacy. But what we do know is that they invest uh, more than 10 billion US dollars in their national laboratory for quantum information science, which is currently being built or currently being extended. And Alibaba is is also looking uh, into into quantum uh, quantum sciences, also quantum information sciences, is also researching in the matter. Another player is NTT, which is researching both hardware and software systems for quantum computing, including ultra-cold atoms. Remember that you need to really store the matter in, in a very cold environment in order to achieve quantum properties and as well as they're looking into applications for encryption and prescriptive medicine, which we will as well in a, in a couple of minutes. And there is Toshiba. Um, they focus on uh, the cryptography part of quantum. So they um, want to essentially bring um, cryptography and encryption into a post-quantum world and are looking to secure network communications with uh, quantum technologies. As for startups, the one that raised a lot of money in April 2020 was Psi Quantum, with a um, I think it was Series B round of 150 million US dollars. In total, they raised 230 million. Their lead investor is well-known Atomico. They are further um, seeing BlackRock as one of their investors, and they have a strategic partnership with Microsoft on quantum computing. Wow. Now, their plan is to use uh, silicon and photons in order to build a universal quantum computer, which is contrary to what many other startups are researching into, which is using so-called trapped ions for their quantum solution.
1: Exactly. So one of the startups that is trying to develop a kind of general purpose quantum computer that uses trapped ions is IonQ. They're based out of Maryland in the US um, and they develop both uh, software and hardware for quantum computing. Uh, Then we have Rigetti Computing, uh, another software, uh, another uh, quantum computing startup um, based out of Berkeley and they develop and manufacture um, quantum integrated circuits and cloud platforms to write quantum algorithms. And they've been backed by Famous Silicon Valley investors like Andreessen Horowitz or the Y Combinator, um, who, by the way, have a great YouTube channel with a great startup course. So if you have free time on your hands, check out Y Com. Um, then we have uh, Zapata. They're a quantum software provider. Um, they raised a total of $64 million. Um, they raised $38 million in a Series B uh, round of funding, I think, back in November. And then we have uh, one in Europe, IQM. Uh, they raised uh, 39 million euros uh, back in November in a Series A, and they're trying to build semiconducting quantum computers. Um, they've raised 71 million so far. So, yeah, it's a booming market. And uh, IQM uh, really uh, is focusing kind of, a quantum computer is not to general purpose or to the general public, but specifically for research laboratories and supercomputing centers. And here's an interesting quote uh, that I came upon. IQM will have a lasting impact on the future of computing and consequently will help solve some of the global challenges related to healthcare, climate change, and the development of sustainable materials among many others. So yeah, it seems interesting that quantum, computings are, uh, quantum computers are just interesting to the general public, but also really interesting towards solving actual societal needs and being focused for research as well.
0: So let's shrug off all the atoms and mathematics and physics off our shoulders and ask the question, so what? Let's look Why? into <laughs> applications. Why? Why are we using quantum computing? Now... One potential application is quantum simulations. In order for us to understand our brain better, in order for us to understand the space better, which we've uh, discovered last episode, in order for us to look into how matter behaves in a subatomic world, we need to go and simulate quantum systems. And this is only possible if we can simulate Probability distributions, of course, but also if you can simulate superposition, entanglement, and all the properties that, that quantum systems inherit. And this could prove very useful for the things mentioned and also to develop new materials that might have very favorable, proper, very favorable properties for our consumption and our eco- economy in general. So, industrial well, applications.
1: It goes beyond the economy, right? I mean, we could, uh, if we solve climate change, we're talking ecology. I mean, This could affect everyone and everything.
0: Yeah. So think material sciences, industrial applications, as well as chemical industry and energy industry. This is still quite, um, let's say, early stage. So the concrete use cases, there are not that many yet. Now, one exciting topic, of course, is machine learning, as we're talking about computing. And in machine learning, many times we do matrix operations. So we multiply matrices with each other or we do matrix operations. And therefore, um, GPUs are quite useful. So uh, the, the classical GPUs, but also QPUs, so quantum processing units for parallelized computations. And um, algorithms like simulated annealing annealing can significantly improve the time complexity of solving something like the traveling salesman problem. And the traveling salesman problem, just very quickly, is uh, for instance what Uber has to do when they send their Uber drivers along the city. So they need to figure out what is the shortest path between, to, to, to essentially circum, um, to essentially circulate between different locations where it's not quite clear um, in what order you would circulate b- between those. And simulated annealing, for instance, as, as we've discovered, is a meta-heuristic, which finds us the best algorithm uh, to solve that problem. But there we could also think about using entanglement and, and superposition in order to try out all the different possibilities at once, and thus reduce the time and space complexity of the operation by many Um Exactly. So as we've already um, explored, those properties are very useful. So the main three one are superposition, entanglement, and quantum tunneling. While Google, at least we believe that, Google has not achieved quantum supremacy in 2017 yet. IBM, which criticized them on that or which... Um, let's say challenge them on that has claimed that uh, quantum supremacy might happen within five years. And they did that in 2018. So um, if we add five years to that, then that would mean in 2023 uh, quantum supremacy could be a reality. And this is really exciting because this would unlock all the applications that we're now talking about and uh, much more and could potentially change um, as much so that we will talk about it as if we will talk about the invention of the internet, or even further. Now, and yeah, so as explained before, um, some obstacles are still along the way, and in challenges we will dive deeper into those, also technically. And uh, it's unclear yet how we will solve them in the in the near future.
1: Yeah, but uh, continuing on the various applications, we also have healthcare, and medicine. So this is a space that really has a lot to gain from quantum computing. So in the recent years, with the amount of data that's been generated and the complexity of healthcare systems now, not just being um, local or even national, but now with COVID-19 being transnational or even global, there is a big need for technologies to make use of all those data effectively and efficiently to generate useful predictions. And according to IBM, there are three use cases for quantum computing uh, in healthcare, but um, yeah, let's, let's take a look at those. So one of them is diagnostic assistance and this basically as the name suggests enables earlier and more accurate and more granular disease diagnosis and risk predictions and quantum computing, uh, quantum computers would really help in these classification tasks um, based on images. So, using computer vision combined with AI, um, there's a lot to be won here for making accurate um, predictions more earlier and averting risk as much as possible. Another is precision medicine. So this means that you can now with Uh, quantum computers you can test individuals for their drug sensitivity um, interventions and other treatments and uh, this again um, can be combined with artificial intelligence to the point where we can really have tailored custom fit medicine for each person Um, and even on a broader price uh, or, or a broader scheme you have the development of new drugs and vaccines as we know now is just trying out combinations of certain materials. And this is, again, uh, just a problem of trial and error, which classical computers try to solve by using brute force, but a quantum computer would get to the solution much, much faster. And a sub or kind of a, um, a problem that is within here is protein folding. I don't know how many have heard of it, but it's essentially the fact that um, a a protein can be folded in hundreds of millions of unique ways, and each of these has a different effect. So finding the right protein folding means that we can cure anything from COVID-19 to cancer to any disease. All we need to know is how to fold the protein the right way. And this is, again, something that's can be facilitated by a quantum computer. Um, and last but not least is uh, pricing. So on insurance premiums and in general, the risk analysis um, for the healthcare sector, uh, these datas can be aggregated um, and uh, can be effectively put to use with a quantum computer where you can get uh, better pricing models both for customers as well as insurance providers. Um, I think fraud detection is probably another area quantum computers can help. So these are the very various areas right from saving lives to being more efficient with insurance premiums. Uh,
0: let's look into encryption. So quantum algorithms like Shores with the RSA encryption or also Grovers but also others are capable of breaking some encryption algorithms, but not all of them. So supposedly symmetric cryptography and hash functions might stand the test of time and prove resilient against quantum attacks. Also, there is uh, post-quantum cryptography, which is a whole area of research looking into making encryption safe in a quantum world, So, and and thus much safer in general. So in, in a quantum world, or let's say in a quantum computing world, because we do already live in a quantum world, clearly, um, the whole idea of post-quantum encryption would make things safer. Also think about end-to-end encryption between devices, which, for instance, if you could teleport information, would be even more safer, and much, much safer than if you use um, Telegram today. On to finance, Um, when we talk about finance, something where we believe that quantum algorithms will not be that helpful is in predicting alpha or performing better than a certain index, uh, a certain fund, or an active manager for that matter, or any passive solution. Because whenever we talk about alpha, we are talking about something where you have more information than the other market participants, or you have a better algorithm than other market participants, which usually is a temporary matter whenever the information is publicly available or partially publicly available. So at least if we're leaving the bird's eye perspective, so when we're leaving the idea of predicting markets in general, when we try to price certain assets or predict the development of asset prices of certain assets, Um, Having a better algorithm is not necessarily going to solve the the trick, but rather it's about having better data. However, where it gets interesting is where we are already using um, sort of artificial intelligence, which is in financial transactions that are automated or decided upon by computers. So think, for instance, high frequency trading, where computers exploit small inefficiencies in the market making mechanism of marketplaces within fractions of seconds. So when it's about speed and when it's about calculating something really fast, quantum computing could really come into the picture. Now, the before-mentioned developments regarding cryptography are obviously also relevant when we want to secure financial transactions and accounts. So it could also make the financial um, financial system even more secure. And finally, um, the classical or the now... Um, dived into um, areas of where we can apply AI to finance are also relevant in a quantum world, which is for instance, risk modeling, portfolio optimization, uh, choosing the right balance between asset classes, fraudulent payment detection or credit default prediction. So all of them will also potentially benefit from the inclusion of quantum computing.
1: Yeah, and to round off the, the applications, I don't think we've exhausted the benefits, um, but yeah, another one is um, in, in search functions. So Grover's algorithm, as you mentioned, um, it significantly speeds up search uh, within a unstructured database. So quantum computers can make use of this algorithm much more better. Um then we have interestingly this was just a week ago you mentioned the travelers pro um problem earlier so there's a similar problem in the aviation industry where with an increasing number of aircrafts and routes assigning aircrafts to routes is an optimization problem that has an exponentially increasing complexity so this is a really a hard issue um but one that could save airlines a lot of money And a week ago, the Chalmers University of Technology Quantum Computer Project, which was in collaboration with uh, other institutions, they developed their first, um, one of its kind, Quantum Approximation Optimization Algorithm, or QAOA, which is one of the weirdest acronyms I've ever heard. But this one solves the problem of assigning aircrafts to routes. And they had their own quantum computer with two qubits, And it was a a modeling on a smaller scale with just two aircrafts, but they showed that with an increased number of qubits, they could actually create um, or they could train this algorithm to the point that it could uh, solve the problem of assigning aircrafts to these routes. So those are our uh, applications of quantum computers that we came across that we thought of, but I think, it's fair to say that we have not nearly scratched the potential, or the surf, or just have merely scratched the surface of what quantum computers can achieve. I think pretty much anywhere you have a computer today, um, this new speed isn't just like you know a new phone where you have a a, a little faster speed. I think it's a really a tectonic shift, and given that computers are a part of our day at every step. Um, Literally, sometimes even, I think it's almost impossible to know then all the benefits or application possibilities of quantum computers. But I think that's enough of the rosy side. (laughs) It's not a, well, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As more minds will wrap their head around this, we will come also to more conclusions onto what we can do with quantum computing. And the future of computing in general is obviously very relevant to our societies and also to our podcast, where we discuss technologies and, and such. Um, also, the quantum internet, which we will briefly discuss in our utopia, is, for instance, something that will also come up. But discussing this is, uh, discussing a lot of this is based on the idea of quantum supremacy. And it's unclear yet whether quantum supremacy has been achieved. And we are looking into some of the technical challenges that quantum computers bring along because the useful properties at the same time can be a big problem when realizing their potential. So the first problem is sort of the obvious one, and it has not really changed since the bits, since sorry, since the CPUs, because when we manufacture chips, um, as you mentioned, there is currently a limit to, I think, seven nanometers, you said, in, in size and for qubits um, there is also some problems with size so you cannot stack an limit an unlimited amount of qubits onto um, onto a transistor onto or a quantum transistor and then um, yeah just have it work so the problem is to isolate them in a sense that they are not transmit transmitting control signals in between the, in between each other so they there so that there is no signal crosstalk the other problem with that is that if you place them too close to each other, then you have problems with quantum tunneling, which is something we discuss in a second. But in general, for any um, sort of complete Turing machine, which is what we describe a a computer as in computer science, um, for any of these things, you want to have a fault tolerance. And fault tolerance in very simple terms means that the system is not crashing down um, randomly. So a robust quantum error correction is needed because these systems, when they, um, when they output errors, they, um, what you usually do when a system outputs errors in order to prevent that, in order to correct that, rather, is you store the information in multiple places. However, according to the no-cloning theorem, you cannot copy quantum information. You cannot co- copy it to a different place and store it there. The idea that Peter Shore had and the algorithm that he discovered to solve that is that he relies still on storing the information on just one qubit, but you entangle that with several other qubits. So similar to the teleportation idea that we discussed, you entangle the one qubit where the state is on or the information is on, you entangle it with other qubits and thus are able to um, transfer and store that information. Now, there is one particular um, interesting character in the space, which is Jill Kalai, a Yale professor, professor. and he says that quantum systems as we imagine them to be will never be possible. So that's very sad. Um, He says that due to the noise that quantum systems produce, we will not be able to achieve quantum supremacy. And one of the reasons is quantum decoherence the idea that quantum particles lose all their useful properties when they are being observed. So the superposition resolves into a deterministic state when they are being uh, observed. And also when you interact with them, which is necessary for computation and for extracting information. So when you interact with them with heat, electromagnetic waves, radiation, whatever, then it's as these systems are really sensitive, it might happen quite soon that they lose their quantum properties. And um, the other reason is the uncertainty principle, which, um, as as mentioned at the beginning, developed by by Heisenberg, means that you cannot measure um, two very important properties at once. You cannot measure the position of a quantum, for instance, in an atom, and its momentum at once. You can only measure one of the two, which also puts a limitation onto our computational um, abilities so these need to be looked into and need to be solved before uh, we can scale to quantum supremacy and beyond.
1: Yeah, and the the last challenge uh, that we found was um, quantum tunneling. So this poses a challenge um, in that, according to Moore's law, right? Um, Moore's law states that as time progresses, technologies become smaller, cheaper, more efficient, more widely accessible. So according to this law, quantum tunneling or quantum computers should become smaller, more efficient. So this inadvertently means that over time, more qubits will be forced onto a circuit to increase performance. But as we know, if barriers become smaller than 3 nanometers, the electrons can simply escape through them, meaning that if the barriers become small enough, if due to Moore's law quantum computers become really small, the electrons will simply escape the device altogether, meaning that there is a physical limitation of how small or how tightly packed quantum computers can be. And this is beyond um, the signal crosstalk that you mentioned. So it seems that there is a a really strong uh, limitation on on quantum, computer in, uh, com- quantum computers and their size. Um, but nevertheless, uh, we are maniacs. Uh, we love to dream. Um, so let's get into what a utopian day in the life would look like where we have achieved quantum supremacy.
0: Yeah, very excited to do so. And as we are a maniac and as I'm a maniac, I couldn't imagine the quantum future without brain-machine interfaces, which is also a topic that we will discuss in the future. So, But more generally, what quantum computing will enable us to do is it will accelerate the path to general artificial intelligence, which means that AI will um, decide for us. AI will automate things, not just automate mechanical things like we do with with computers and machines, but also automate decision-making and intelligence. Now, so I essentially wake up and uh, I have my brain machine interface um, set on and uh, the computing devices and the data that I'm using is connected to the quantum encrypted quantum internet, which has faster than light speed and data exchange and accessibilities based on entanglement and or teleportation of data and the Grover's algorithm, which lets me search all my unstructured data much faster than a classical computer could. And yeah, I have a much deeper understanding of my brain. Um, obviously, I do have that because I have a BMI, a brain machine interface, but also because we've understood the quantum principles. And the, um, my experience is enhanced by light as fast uh, quantum computations in my BMI device. So I take a taxi and mobility is fully autonomous. Uh, we've discussed it also in another episode including real-time analysis and prediction of traffic and any sort of interaction between vehicles, all of that based on quantum safe quantum networks. New materials that we're using are fully organic and circular, so they are recycled and used again. And they are allowing us for theoretically limitless consumption, which we not even make use of because we don't need it. And R and D times for any sort of thing, like new materials or medicine, is brought down exponentially because, based on superposition and entanglement, our algorithms search for all the potential um, states or all the potential uh, combinatorics possibilities, for instance, that could solve a problem within an instance. So, for any of those needs, AI has taken over the task. And finally, also, um, as I'm um, as I'm waiting for delivery of my package. Um, supply chains are completely autonomous. So there are quantum networks where the sensor systems are connected to each other with or without blockchain. And the full supply chain is automated including supply chain finance or working capital uh, decisions and all the settling at harbors, airports,
1: shops. And yeah, I mean, Because we can teleport particles and combine it with 3D printing, it doesn't mean that you have to even go to a store. Uh, Anything that you wish, be it food, the latest iPhone, um, anything that you can dream of um, can be printed. The information can be brought to you at faster than light speed and combined with the 3D printer. And of course, with quantum computers, we'll have made serious progress in material science so we'll be able to construct items that we didn't even know were possible. Um, of course as you mentioned we'll have personalized medicine but not just medicine and also also nutrition um, to the point where we probably won't even need medicine unless it's uh, something more uh, uh, genetical. Um, we'll have variables that are connected to the clouds um, and of course, due to the fast data transfer, you have real-time quantum and big data-enabled decision-making, um, almost reminiscent of the Sherlock Holmes quote where he says, if I had access to every strand of data in the world, I could predict the future. Um, you have, of course, a personalized and fully automated finance uh, a portfolio manager based on your individual preferences. Um, That, of course, comes along with recommender systems and historical financial risk and performance data of various assets and their classes. Um, And on a larger role, uh, I mean, these are things that affect a day in the life. But I think quantum mechanics can also, or the understanding of quantum mechanics can also affect our life as, as such, in that entanglement and connectedness can offer a potential, maybe more than potential explanation for consciousness, thoughts, sensations, perception, even spirituality, what is the soul. I think we can find answers to questions we couldn't even think of, or at least couldn't think that they were ever answerable. Um, The superposition and the role of the observer might also be an explanation for subjectivity. Um, superposition and the creation of parallel universes or particip- uh, participatory universe through our perception. Uh, that's interesting, right? I mean, that's that's beyond our universe even. Um, maybe entanglement is a reason why we come across certain people in our lives. Maybe it's a reason why you're watching this podcast now. Maybe that's how we can explain... Um, Random things like randomness, luck, or destiny, or fate. Um, and maybe the perception or maybe illusion of time can be nurtured uh, by superposition, entanglement, and relativity. So, really, I don't think quantum mechanics would just affect one utopian day in your life. I think it'll turn <laughs> your whole life upside down, um, really fundamentally change the way we think about everything. And
0: I'm not sure if all of this will become reality, but what I think is the correlation between this becoming a reality and you, dear audience, subscribing to our channel is given because when more people are looking into these things,
1: we can connectively uh, bring this further, no? Exactly. And to my knowledge, I think that's all we have on quantum computers. So I know it was a pretty heavy subject matter this week (laughs) who also quite uh tough to prepare uh but very interesting and again i can't wait until 2023 when ibm predicts it will reach quantum supremacy it'll also be interesting to see what all these startups are doing yeah it's it's something else entirely isn't it
0: yeah and in the meantime you can find us on youtube spotify Google podcast and some other podcasts still not Apple podcast is still coming. Apple is taking its time, but in 2021, sooner than quantum supremacy, there will be (laughs) UTX on Apple podcast.
1: Yeah. I think we don't have a topic for next week. Uh, Do we want to go with brain and machine interfaces as a new year's gift or? Well, completely into it. Yeah. My favorite. Or do you want to let the hype build up a bit more? Well, maybe we don't know um maybe, maybe there is some crazy news coming up i don't know yeah we'll we'll have to wait and see i guess um so oh and maybe one last thing that's um maybe a more philosophical quote that that struck me was um with superpositions we know that our observation um creates or forces uh, the collapse of the superposition into one state so to think about it, our observation is physically influencing reality as we see it. So that's something interesting to think about: the way we see things, or the very fact that we see something changes it. So with that, uh, we maniacs wish you a very happy holidays, a happy new year. We'll be uploading next year only, I guess it's. Um, the 28th today as we upload um stay safe and enjoy your time with your family and as always stay utopian
0: you're maniacs